Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for meeting all of our needs. And we now give these, our tithes and our offerings, to you. As the one who first gave them to us, we claim nothing as our own. But we give these to you in faith and with thankfulness that you will take and use them to accomplish your good purposes. We pray that you would do that. Lord, our desire, our hope is to see many come to know you. We pray for friends and loved ones and neighbors, but we also pray for those in the far reaches of the world that the gospel would go forth. We pray to that end that your name may be made glorious among all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. See a few more faces back this Sunday that we haven't seen in a long time. Karen and Alma, it's good to have you back with us today. I know I risk, when I call out people by name, I'm sure I've missed many, but it's just good to, it's been so long, it's good to have each of you back with us. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Clayton, get ready. I knew I was going to have a hard time this morning. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I know this is awkward. I'm sorry. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help. Uh, help. Help us to see the glory of Jesus, all that he is for us. Help us to see and to know the reality of our hope. Because there are so many things that are happening in our world, in our lives, and things that we're experiencing that make it feel like this is nuts. That this is foolishness. It's nonsense. Help us to see the glory of the gospel today. To know that it is the power of our salvation. So the weight of sin that we feel has been removed and will one day ultimately be completely, all remnants of it removed. There will be no more tears. There will be no more fear. There will be no more guilt and shame. And we long for that day. And so we pray, come quickly. Lord Jesus, amen. Please be seated. I know what it's like to be on the other side when somebody does this. I've been afraid it's going to happen a number of times. I normally know because I get emotional when I go through my sermon like, oh, I'm going to have a hard time this week. I think I psyched myself up. That didn't happen. I don't know why uh, this morning. And... um, it just got me, so I apologize. Um, the scene here is a continuation of what we saw in chapter 4. Uh, it's a continuation of that same vision. It's the second vision that John has uh, where we get a glimpse into the very throne room of heaven. And while chapter 4 focuses our attention on God and His glory, particularly His work of creation... Here we see our attention focus in on the work of redemption, in particular on the Son Himself. And this vision will continue on. This is not the end of it. It continues on in chapter 6, and there we're going to get into the details of the seven seals. I know many of you are excited about that. We start getting into the details of Revelation and what all of these things mean. But this is so, so important for us. Excuse me. So important for us to get this foundation laid. This is not in here by mistake, that we see first and foremost the glory of the risen Lamb is the backdrop then for when the catastrophes come. That we as the children of God know that although the catastrophes are difficult, they're difficult to see and to know that they are necessary to accomplish God's good purposes. This triune plan of redemption that was foretold in the Old Testament in shadows and types and prophecies revealed as though through a veil. Paul calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's in Colossians 1. In Ephesians uh, 3, he puts it this way, the unsearchable riches of Christ to, that bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we see in Revelation 5 is this heavenly portrayal of the ancient plan, the ancient plan that had been hidden, that had been kept a mystery, now revealed the plan of redemption, the plan that... that 
we remember even angels long to look into. And so here we see them looking in with praise along with the elders who represent the people of God. It may be helpful to think at this point, what John is seeing in this vision is not an event that is happening at this time, right? For years, I thought that way, and it was, this was very confusing to me because what John sees in this vision, some of these things already happened. Some of them are happening, and then some of them are yet to happen. And so we have to remember that John is in the Spirit, and he's having a vision of something in heaven that's outside of space and time. So this vision, although the vision was real and it happened to him between 60 and 90 A.D., whatever, whenever we date the book of Revelation, that, that that truly happened. He had this experience. What he was seeing was something that was happening outside of space and time. Hopefully that helps you understand what we're seeing here uh, because of what Christ has already done, is doing, and will do. So begin looking in verse 1, and the very first thing that we see is John's attention is directed to the scroll that is found in the right hand of the Father. And the scroll is described as sealed with seven seals with writing on both sides. And so the symbol then that this is conveying or representing is the comprehensive plan of God. His purposes throughout history, including creation and redemption, but not just creation to, redemp- creation to redemption as we read, uh, as Clayton prayed this morning, that before the foundation of time, God chose us in him. So the plan is beyond that, and it's beyond, it's, it's everything redemption means, right? It's going to carry on into the, the, the consummation of the kingdom. It's the entire plan of God written on both sides. That's John's way of saying it's complete. It's full. There's nothing to add to this. There's nothing to supplement this. There's no, nothing needed to, to make this better. It is complete, but it's sealed. And herein is the problem. If it is to remain sealed, it is to remain unrevealed and unexecuted. It's to remain hidden and not carried out. Who is worthy to break the seal? And that's the question that comes up in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And John answers the question for us in verse 3, that no one in all creation is able to take the scroll And open it. No man or woman, because of sin, is able to take the scroll and open it. No angel, even though sinless, has the power to accomplish this. And John's reaction to this realization is that of tremendous grief. He begins to to just burst into tears, begins to weep. Weep loudly, it says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. Now, again, I said, you know, this is happening outside of space and time because otherwise if we come at this and liter- look at it literally, then we have trouble understanding what that even means. How does John even understand what's in there if no one's able to open it? How does he even see that it's written on both sides if no one's able to open it? I mean, there's, there's problems with that. We have to understand it's a vision. And just, you know, there, there's the, God has a way of working, and we're going to see this further on, when God, God has a way of working things out to, to, to make things clear, to accomplish all of his purposes without it fitting into our little finite minds. Uh, so John here is, is, is being revealed things more than what he's just describing that he sees. He is able to understand both that the scroll is written on both sides, even though it's still rolled up, it hasn't been broken yet. He's, he, he able, he's able to know this. He's also able to know that 
what the scroll means. Like he has some insight into that. Otherwise, why, why is he weeping, right? He would just maybe sit there and be puzzled. Why is, the, why is the seal sealed? But it wouldn't break his heart unless he knows what's in the scroll. The implication that, that if there's no one to open the scroll, William Hendrickson writes, then there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter, bitter trial, no judgments upon a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heaven, no new earth, no future inheritance. And so because John understands all that the scroll is, then he laments, and we can understand why. It's the weight, it's the weight of sin. It's the weight of his sin, it's the weight of our sin, it's the weight of all sin that we recognize there is a great problem. It's not just our sin. We feel the sin in the world. Creation groans, longs to be redeemed. We feel the hopelessness apart from the hope of redemption. And so, too, we sense the grief with the question, who is worthy? And to this grief, uh, John gets an answer. In verse 5, it is not the angel who comes to him, but it's one of the elders The elders, as we talked about last week, represent the redeemed of God. This is one of God's redeemed, one of his chosen, one who has received the benefits of having his sins washed away and is now clothed in clean white clothing. It is he who then states to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder is pointing us to Jesus, the one who has conquered. And he's called here by two names, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. You may remember if you were with us when we went through Genesis, it was toward the end, so maybe we're more likely to remember it in chapter 49, when Jacob is speaking to his sons, he speaks prophetically to them, and he tells them something about kind of their destiny. You remember what he says to Judah? In chapter 49, he says this, Judah is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Having descended from this Lion, Judah, but more importantly, having conquered sin and death, and his rule and reign would be for all peoples, it says. And we see the hints of the promise to Abraham coming back in. The second name, the root of David, takes us to the promise that God gave in the Davidic covenant. I will raise up your offspring after you, speaking to David, who, will sh- who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We understand the immediate fulfillment of this was, of course, in Solomon, who did build the temple, but this wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. I've explained before how with prophecy you often have an immediate and, a, and, a, and an ultimate fulfillment. And so we see this throughout the Old Testament where things that are prophesied are fulfilled in an immediate context, but then later on we see how Jesus ultimately fulfills them. And of course, much better, completely, ultimately. It's, it's, that, that's what it was all intended. So hints and shadows and types and, and so forth in the Old Testament, we look through this, this uh, glass dimly. But in Jesus, it, you know, it all becomes clear, oh, that's what this was. I mean, think of the Passover lamb over and over every year pointing to that deliverance from Egypt. And that was great. That was wonderful. Crossing the Red Sea, deliverance from slavery. But how much more 
meaningful is it to see that Jesus is the Passover lamb? And so in this case, while it is fulfilled immediately in Solomon, Solomon would die. And his, his, his kingdom, his earthly kingdom, would not endure forever. The ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is found in Jesus, the descendant of David. Isaiah 11, 1 foretells, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It may seem that the Davidic dynasty had faded from history, but Isaiah tells us a shoot will emerge. It makes me think of that walnut tree. I've told you the story, cutting it down, got in big trouble for it. We all thought it was gone forever. But guess what? From that stump, a shoot emerged. And that tree is as nearly as big as the roof on this building. It's, it's huge today. It always makes me think of that when I now think of the shoot that emerges here. You'll notice that Jesus is called the root, however, not David. So if he emerges from the stump, wouldn't David be the root? No, Jesus is called the root. Why? Because Jesus preexisted David. Jesus made all things. It's the Son of God who is therefore the root. And together, these two titles, what they're, what they're given to represent here is all that the Old Testament foretold, that everything has been fulfilled in Jesus. You remember after his resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, walking along with two of his followers, and he said, as he instructed them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Everything was working toward this consummation, toward this fulfillment in Jesus. It is he who fulfills the scriptures because he has conquered. Through his life and death and resurrection, he has overcome. And so now here in this vision, we see the ascended Savior, who through his conquering is now able to take the scroll and open its seals. We're coming up on Ascension Day. Uh, we don't make as big a deal of this uh, in, in the American church, but you know, we, 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 it's good to remember. It's the 40th day after Easter. It's the day that marks Jesus' ascension. It's coming up May 13th. And what the, 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 the reason that the day is so important is that it, it, it's, it conveys really what we're seeing here in Revelation 5. That after his death and his resurrection, he didn't just remain, but he ascended. Where? To the throne. And he now rules and reigns. Because of his death and resurrection, he is worthy to open the seal, or open the scroll and break the seals. The elder announces to John that it's the Lion of Judah who is worthy. This is the name that he gives him. But look in verse 6. John sees not a lion, but a lamb. And it's not only a lamb. He describes it as though it had been slain. Now, we can't be sure. He doesn't give us any more details of what he means by that. But there was something visual that causes John to know that this lamb had been slain, but is now standing alive. I can't help but think of, again, following the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. He comes to them and he says, see my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. He wants them to see and to know the scars from his crucifixion remain in his body so the disciples could see and believe and know that this was truly Jesus standing before them. And in the same way, John understands that the Lamb who was slain is now standing alive before him. I mentioned at the beginning of our study in Revelation, the Ghent altarpiece, one of my favorite pieces of art. It's called The Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. If you've ever seen the How Should We Then Live series, the Francis Schaeffer series, that's what's on the cover of the book. It's also in that video series. 
But in this picture is portrayed people from all nations, tribes and tongues, people from every level of society. They gather with the angels around an altar. And on the altar is standing a lamb. And the lamb is alive. But from the lamb's chest is a fountain of blood that pours and fills a chalice that sits there on the altar. And this is a piece of art. It's symbolic. It's pointing us. It's instructing us. You could look at it possibly and miss all of that. In fact, it, it's in Belgium. You can go see it today. And I would bet most people go look at that and they see it simply as a religious piece of art and it means nothing to them. But to you and to I, when we layer Revelation 5 over that piece of art, we see so much more in it. Because there is the Lamb, though slain, now standing alive, and His blood is sufficient to cover all of our sin. In that symbol, though, is also the paradox of the gospel, right? The great mystery of redemption, that through suffering and crucifixion and death, our salvation was accomplished. Vern Poitras writes, God achieved His triumph and delivered His people, not through the fireworks of military might, but through the weakness of crucifixion. This way of doing things is an offense to worldly ways of thinking. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So the foolishness of Jesus' death is here crowned as wisdom as he demonstrates that he has conquered. It's not only wisdom. Notice that the lamb is described as having seven eyes and seven horns. The seven eyes, the omniscience, the wisdom, the all-knowing of God. Again, so important that we understand this is a vision. Uh, Otherwise, this would would scare us uh, or scare our children if we read this. I mean, a lamb as though slain, seven eyes, seven horns. It sounds really, really creepy. All of these things are symbols designed to communicate something to us not to be understood literally as this is what Jesus will look like when we get to heaven. So seven seven eyes, the intelligence, the wisdom, the all-knowing omniscience of God, and then seven horns, the power. And of course, we know the number seven, completeness or fullness. This is all knowledge, all power that he possesses. But then John describes the work of the Holy Spirit, that this is actually demonstrating the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not limited to the throne room of heaven, but it goes out in the Spirit's work. And we understand that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts to bring our dead hearts to salvation. It's the Spirit who works to sanctify us into the image of of Christ as we grow in grace. It's the Spirit of God who intercedes when we don't know what to pray. And it's His Spirit who empowers the church to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Everything we see then here in the throne room is the redemptive work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together in unity and in harmony. In verse 7 now, Jesus goes and takes the scroll from the Father, which signals that He is the one who will execute the plan. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who will do this. And the response of the creatures and the elders is that everyone falls flat on their face. He is the one who is worthy. The elders filled with gratefulness for their redemption. The angels filled with awe for the glory of God's grace on display in redemption. Consider this, before the plan of redemption is revealed, angels don't understand redemption. There there wasn't redemption for angels. They're perfect. 
And the ones who fell, there was no plan of redemption for them. And so here, they're, they're, they're given insight into something that marvels them, that leaves them in awe. This is what Peter writes of, the things that you have now been announced, or that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. There's another hint back to the Holy Spirit's work of sending uh, the gospel forward. These things into which angels long to look. They're left in awe. We also see the elders here serving in their representative role. They're leading musically with harps. They hold golden bowls full of incense. And John explains to us that these golden bowls represent the prayers of the saints. This is not a literal, our prayers don't turn into incense and float up into heaven. It's a symbolic, visual, it helps us understand uh, what, how things look or how things appear. And of course, incense was used in, in Old Testament worship. There were golden utensils and bowls in, in, the, uh, in the, the tabernacle and the temple. And so all of this is pointing us back to this act of worship, that prayer, uh, that, that, that these come up as a fragrant aroma to God when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or we pray, deliver us, vindicate us, subdue our enemies, or come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of our prayers. There's no, I'm not saying that there's, it's just those prayers. It's all of our prayers, but our prayers go up as our fragrant aroma before God. And then in verses 9 to 14, they bow before the Lamb all together and they sing these three new songs. The first one is really the only one that, that says that they sang. The other two says they proclaimed. But they're all doxologies. They're all songs of praise or what we would call uh, doxologies. And they're new, it says. It's important for us to think about that. Something new, something fresh, they, as they understand, as they grow in, in, in their understanding. And, and we see that with them a chorus emerges, not only the, four elder, or the, the, the 24 elders and the four creatures, but now there are many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands in verse 11. This is John's way simply of saying there was too many to count. Right? There was just way too many to count. The songs themselves, of course, point to the uh, sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. They ascribe worth to Him in His saving act. That doesn't mean that Jesus lacked worth or any, in any way added to His worth. He is the eternal Son of God. But to us, and to angels, to create, created beings, we can only stand in awe that the perfect Son of God would willingly lay down His life and demonstrate such incredible love for us, it says, For you were slain, verse 9, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Pointing to his death, which he did not deserve, they praise him. He redeemed his people. He accomplished uh, overcoming the just wrath of God, the, the just wrath that we deserved for all of the wrong that we've done, he has taken on him. And he goes on, From every tribe and language and people and nation. Again, here is the, is the clear pointer to the promise given to Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? God's plan was never so small as to be limited to one people group, to only then have his mind changed and expand, expanded to include others. This was the plan from creation past, from all eternity. Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And His will was to create a kingdom, a kingdom of priests 
to reign with Him forever. We've seen this already in the letters to the seven churches, the promises given to them. We'll continue to see this theme uh, emerge throughout the book of Revelation, that Christ's kingdom established in His first advent is now continued in His reign through the church, but will be fully consummated when He returns at His second coming. The second song ascribes seven descriptives to the Lamb. Again, the number seven, the number of completeness. It's the the idea that the list is so complete that there's no room for um, missing the deity of Jesus. That He is God, yet became a man. That He is King, and yet came as a servant. That He is the author of life, yet came to die. That He is the Lion of Judah, yet was slain like a lamb. That He is the Prince of Peace, and yet came as the suffering servant. Jesus is worthy. And to that, every creature, along with all of creation now in verse 13. So we have the four living creatures, now we have all the angels. And then in verse 13, the third refrain, all of creation joins in to ascribe glory and honor to our God for His incredible grace toward us. And this is because not only are the people of God saved, but all of creation will be renewed and restored. Paul speaks of the groaning of creation in Romans 8, that it longs to be made new, that it longs to overcome its bondage to decay. Even creation cries out. And now in Revelation 5, John sees the chorus of angels, the redeemed, and all of creation join together to sing praise to the Creator and Redeemer. And then the scene closes in verse 14 with the pronouncement of the Amen by the four living creatures. We've talked about the word Amen. It's a word of agreement. It's, it's, saying, it's the verily, verily, this is true, I agree with this. It's an acknowledgement of what reality is. And so here they pronounce the amen. They pronounce the amen to the praise given to God. They pronounce the amen to the work of creation and the work of redemption. They pronounce the amen to the opening of the seals that will bring about the consummation of the kingdom. And as you know, if you've peeked ahead or if you've ever read the book of Revelation, What's coming in the seven seals and trumpets and bowls and so forth is not pleasant. And yet here they pronounce the amen to this. It is difficult to read in times appalling, but it portrays the just judgment against sin and evil. And so we need to keep firmly in our minds the images that we see in chapters 4 and 5 as we move forward in the book of Revelation for these reasons. One, We will remember that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is now seated on the throne, having overcome sin and death and taking on the judgment for those who have trusted in Him, the judgment that we deserved. This is something I say we need to remember, and you say, Seth, that's so basic. You say that every Sunday. Yeah, we need to remember every Sunday because we forget. We listen to the lies of the evil one that that think that somehow we're unworthy, And we are, apart from Jesus. But He has made us worthy. And so when you sin and when you fall and when you struggle in doubt and when you're discouraged and you're low, you come back to this truth over and over again that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, seated on the throne, has overcome the judgment, the just judgment that was due to us. Secondly, we remember that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain and is now risen, the first fruit of the resurrection, which proves we will be raised with Him. Again, doubting 
right? Everything in the world tells us that what we believe is nuts, that it's foolishness, resurrection, new life. And yet there's this longing in all of us. We know that this is not all that there is. And we can know with confidence that what Christ has accomplished has been applied to us and that we will be raised with Him. Third, we remember that Jesus, the root of David, has purchased for Himself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue so that we now as as sons and daughters are given all of the promises to Abraham. We are now called sons of Abraham. We now receive all of the benefits. And so our future is certain because as we look back, And all of the promises that were made that are now fulfilled in Christ, that God has done what He said He would do, and we can know that He will do what He says He will do in the future. These images point to our future, that we will be delivered safely in the end, and we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with great hope today? Deepen our assurance that we will know what Christ is and has done for us. That we will be steadied and strengthened and even motivated and driven in this life to live all for you. Encourage our hearts. Build us up, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is only because of the one who is worthy that all of this will come true. So I want to respond with something a little different. I know your order of worship says, all hail the power of Jesus' name, and that's what I picked. But driving home last night, after I left here, this is the song that came on. And I thought about using it, but even though we don't, we don't know it, to sing it, we're not going to sing it, because I can't sing. But I want us to use this as a responsive reading. It's in your handout. For whatever reason, I pulled out, I just had the thing on shuffle. This is the song that came on. And as I listened to it, I knew it was about Revelation 5, but it just hit me and it went away, and I'm like, we got to do this tomorrow. I didn't know how we were going to do it because I can't sing the part, so we're going to use this as a, as a reading. I don't know if this will work. This is how we're going to respond to our, our, our time to, in worship today. Stand with me if you will. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of this? He is. He is worthy. 
Hear now and receive the benediction. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.